I first came into Road Torque and I asked how much time our engineering leadership team spends out in the field with customers, the, the response was, well, that's not our job. We don't do that. That's the sales guys go out and do that work and then tell us what they need. And we have certainly flipped that uh, on its head. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Kevin Hosteller, CEO of Rotork, describing one of the first changes he put in place when he launched a large organizational transformation. Rotork is a UK-based company that makes industrial flow control equipment. You might be wondering what industrial flow equipment is. Essentially, Rotork's products allow companies in chemical, oil, gas, and other industries to control the flow of liquids, gases, and powders. In today's episode, Kevin talks with Anna Koivinyemi about how his team kept the multi-year transformation project on track during the COVID-19 crisis and how the results will position the company for future growth. Anna is a partner in our Amsterdam office who co-leads our growth strategy practice globally. We recorded this conversation before Kevin announced his intention to step down from his CEO role in 2022 and return to the United States. This podcast continues our occasional series of conversations between McKinsey experts and the CEOs of enterprises and advanced industries about creating sustainable growth. Now, here's Anna. Thanks, Sean, for the introduction. And Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time. Rodok is one of the growth outperformers. So we have done an extensive study over 4,000 companies and their growth performance over a period of 10 years. Rodok has been proven to be able to grow faster than the peers and being value-creating, that's more profitable. What have been the biggest contributions of that outperformance? Thanks, Anna. It's a pleasure to be here. I think the biggest contributors have been our strong innovation coupled with what I consider to be great commercial teams in, in all geographies. As the world's leader in electric actuation technologies in particular, Industry is moving rapidly into our area of expertise, and that's very helpful for us as a foundation for the specific growth initiatives that we're driving. You mentioned that, interestingly, there is a lot of movers who come to the industry, but there's also a lot of trends that are impacting the industry. For example, the IoT and digitalization, the environmental boost, the sustainability, the criticality of your customer's equipment. What do you do as a company to identify these trends and evaluating the relevance to you? Yeah, so very extensive part of the organization is really all about primary voice of customer. It's about going out and seeing how the work is done on behalf of our customers, understanding how they create value, and looking at how their business processes are changing. You know, you mentioned digital and IoT as as a potential disruptor and and. Certainly, we see that in our sector, and perhaps the most common way we see digital technologies disrupting our end markets is is in the use of data. And, you know, I'm not talking merely about data generated in process and displaying our pretty charts and graphs and things. That's that's fairly basic. I'm, I'm thinking of true disruption coming from providers like Rotork augmenting data with this level of proprietary domain expertise and creating a very unique and differentiated value to customers in a way that wasn't conceived or done before. I think the the second element of digital that we see impacting our customers really pertains more to that 
human-machine interface and the way operators interact with systems. As companies, even like Rotork, begin to recruit that next generation of workers who have grown up with mobile devices and apps, there's this expectation that the user experience is going to be similar in their work environments. So we have customers adopting on an increasing basis these interactions and they want this enabled real-time seamless experience. This is about the creative use of technologies such as virtual reality and augmented reality enabling this additional market disruption. The third disruption in our industries is where digital is is enabling adoption of new business and, and revenue models. You know, many of our served markets have traditionally been late adopters of new business models. For example, while most companies have, have largely accepted, you know, software as a service-based models and contracts on, on that end from their software vendors, they, the uptake on new ways in which goods and services are delivered in this increasingly connected what we call edge device environment is still relatively slow. We do see that there's a broad range of business models being developed for you know, X as a service, whether it be actuation as a service rather than selling of actuators to um, helping our customers on demand use 3D printers to create spare parts so that they get up and running in near real time. I mean, there's lots of changing elements from this digital disruption and we focus a lot of our, our time and effort from our business development teams understanding how they're being deployed within our business and really leading in these areas. So it's interesting, you mentioned two forces. You have these customer listeners, the people who go mm-hmm. to the customers and understand the processes of them, which is a valuable insight. And then you have, on the other hand, you have the R&D, which is very much of a top-down or vision focus on on allocating the time on digital and disruptions that are not necessarily seen in customers yet. Did I get your system correct? That's correct. And um, in our research, what we have basically found out that these outperformers, companies like you, they are more often, they're looking at all the four directions of Absolutely. the growth. So they're looking at the core, they're looking at geography, adjacencies and value chain disruptions. But on top of that, what we see is that adjacencies, often the 20 plus percent of the growth in, uh, comes from adjacencies. How do you help either to drive adaptation of the new businesses and adjacencies? How do you resource them differently? That's really a great question because we often run into that, right? So there's a few elements that need to come together to help accelerate those adoption curves. And I think you've hit on it in some of your commentary. The first is ensuring that your engineers are spending time out in the field. When I first came into Rotork and I asked how much time our engineering leadership team spends out in the field with customers, the, the response was, well, that's not our job. We don't do that. That's the sales guys go out and do that work and then tell us what they need. And, and we have certainly flipped that uh, on its head. Not only have we reoriented our sales team, and we could certainly talk more about that because that certainly generates additional growth for us. But in parallel to the organization structural reorientation, we brought in third party to train all of our sales team members on how to create more compelling value propositions. We then create a library of those value propositions. So when we have a team member in Asia focusing on a new application and winning an order on a new application, now that we're oriented around these sub-market segments, they now have a global call for every one of those sub-market segments and the teams talk about how they won 
against competitor XYZ in this application, what the value selling, what the resistance to the customers were, how we overcame that. And all of that is then documented and placed in a library. So as an individual sales team member, if you're up and going to visit someone in a particular application, you now can go into our database, put a few keywords in for that application and get really, really well educated on, on the principal drivers, the languages the customer use, what the key value propositions are, and in particular, how we position against the competitive landscape. So that's very helpful in driving that adoption of those adjacencies. The second thing we've done is launched a formal program last year that was focused all around teaching our sales team and engineering team members on how to appropriately conduct primary voice of customer. This was all about how do you go out into the field, listen, ask questions three times more than you make statements about our product, and really begin to understand the value drivers at the end user level. That comes then back into the organization, gets fed through our new product development innovation efforts. And again, it's that combination of additional business development resources, re-educating and training the sales team, and enabling our engineers to assist in that primary voice of customer, where they see other things, learn, begin integrating adjacent products into ours. It's just been a really great formula for us in terms of accelerating our innovation and new product development, and then overcoming any obstacles to that adoption rate. You, Kevin, you sound like you're really bringing the solution selling to the next level in terms Absolutely. of a learning mm -hmm. to listen and in terms of a connecting the sales to, towards the R&D. You must have an overflow of initiatives and ideas. How do you prioritize? Um, we do. We, you know, one of the benefits of our growth acceleration program, um, which is our, our name for our transformation program, is that we have identified many, many work streams and initiatives, and we manage the cadence of all these on a regular basis. As we got into the pandemic and we realized certain initiatives would be harder to fulfill given our inability to to travel and lead for the from the front, for example, we were able to quickly pull in other initiatives that we had already mapped out. We already had a playbook and a plan for them. So by having this large list of initiatives, it just really enabled us to push and pull. And actually, despite having a global pandemic in the critical third year of a transformation program, we were able to stay on track to our original transformation goals, which, again, I think that's just really about pre-planning and having many more initiatives in the hopper than what we've really uh, can do at any one time. What do you mean, Kevin, by initiative? What is for you an initiative? So an initiative for us would be, for example, reorganizing the back end of the front end, right? It, it, you know, it, it's complex. But what we're talking about in that is saying we have an ability to look at how we serve our customers and how many locations we need to do order entry, customer service, application engineering, all of the above. In the original cadence of our transformation program, we said once we complete our fully integrated IT system deployment, which would be you know, certainly by year five, we would then swing back and begin doing some consolidation of some of those regional centers into centers of excellence for that work. As we hit the pandemic and maybe other consolidation efforts were, were going to be delayed, we saw the opportunity to go ahead and move on some of the back office consolidation efforts, you know, getting better leverage on that application engineering group and a customer service and order entry group. 
A question I got often is that how many initiatives is enough? So how many initiatives roughly you actually have with all these concrete uh, performance driven roughly? Yeah, so I would say at any one time, we've got probably 14 or 15 initiatives that we're tracking in our in our program on a on a governance call that we have every Monday for one hour. I think the important thing is to understand how many initiatives of which size and complexity you're taking on at any one time. So certainly in the beginning, we worked on some of those very quick hit, easy to get done initiatives. And we needed to do that in order to build momentum, confidence, to buy time to bring on additional team members that had these experiences leading through transformations. We got through those in kind of the first year and began to demonstrate to the organization how we manage and lead through periods of change. We then began tackling some of the more difficult ones, if you will. So how do you revamp your new product development program from beginning to end? How do you restructure your engineering and innovation teams from beginning to end? Those were kind of some of our medium-sized efforts. So we started working through those. Those are all well in flight now. And then some of the more difficult decisions to be made on additional facility consolidations and what have you. So by understanding the size and complexity of each of the initiatives, we understand that we're not going to have more than three, I would say, large initiatives running simultaneously, right? A great example was we had, we were undertaking, obviously, our, our large implementation of a new global IT system. We also had the opportunity at the same time when I came in that we were in process of building a new global headquarters and engineering center. And what we recognized is that they were two really big and meaty programs. The IT program and implementation of that global system had so much more benefits than us having nice new shiny offices um, for our employees and shareholders to come and see. Um, and those are the decisions we're making on a regular basis at a steering committee. How did you balance the top-down and bottom-up? The top-down steering, what needs to be happen, and the bottom-up uh, initiative taken and ownership. How did you balance that? Well, I think the first thing we did was recognize that we're on a multi-year journey, and we kind of broke it down into three phases. The first phase for us was all about, um, maybe for lack of a better word, cleaning up the business and preparing the business for acceleration. That meant really focusing on being easier to do business with, simplifying our portfolio, having the fortitude to exit underperforming businesses and product lines and geographies, in fact. And we were doing that knowing that all of that work would have a positive margin impact in the near term and allowed us to focus on operational improvements such as implementation of a global sourcing program, lean manufacturing and operations. And again, that would kind of transition phase one into phase two. Phase two was more about accelerating our business. And that means the work we did in phase one to clean up engineering and innovation and new product development, that's a longer cycle for you to fill that funnel with great new, highly impactful innovation ideas. We're in that phase now. We're beginning now to reap that the, the, the seeds that we planted back in, in phase one and phase two in the first three years of the program. So we cadenced all of these initiatives with the third phase being what we deemed internally as embedded excellence, that, that driving that cultural evolution to have a culture of continuous improvement. And we see that as 
our teams around the world continue to add new initiatives into our transformation program. A great example was while the operations team was focused heavily on supply chain and improving our, our, our costs and resilience of our supply chain, they also recognize that we have a particular cost of quality. And the operations team came to the steering committee and said, look, we want to start a new work stream that really focuses on co cost of quality reduction or improvement, I would say, over the next three years. So as these teams dive in and work and have this ethos of continuous improvement, they're continually bringing additional programs to the steering committee and saying, we'd like this resourced, we have a plan and let's begin executing. And that, that momentum is really what's working for us. But initially we listed all the initiatives and, and to your point, we looked at the potential impact of the initiative, the time it would take to execute and our ability as of that point in time to execute. So they fell into multiple categories. Some categories we recognized we needed to go outside, bring in additional skill sets to be more effective, such as supply chain or implementation of a lean manufacturing program. It sounds that you also looked actually, you started more top down on themes to create that mm -hmm. change momentum in the organization. And now the bottom up initiatives uh, are much more kind of bubbling up. Correct. How did you manage your personally yourself on some of the change resistance and some of potential you mentioned earlier, some capability caps of being part of the transformation program? What did you personally do to change that? I think the first things that we did as an organization, and I certainly participated in, was we spent a lot of time understanding the both capability and desire for change within the organization. And what we found is that we had this, this senior team that had much more experience doing that. And then maybe two below, two organization levels below, we had a huge body of emerging leaders that were longing for change, longing for organizational improvement. But then we had this thick, what we call kind of this thick stuck middle, right? That, that truly had been at Rotor for a long time, don't see anything wrong, don't see any need to change. So my job was to create that compelling vision and reason for the change. And once we created that vision, my job was to then spend time on the road. I like to say getting out and spending much more time on the concrete of the factory floors rather than the carpet of the boardroom and convincing the organization of the need for change. I traveled extensively for months, town hall after town hall after town hall, small group meetings, large group meetings. And that wasn't only me, that was all my senior leadership team did this. We then brought in third-party resources to help train the company on change. How do you affect a great change journey, right? What are the tenants that you're going to focus on that are going to be core to your change journey? And we put those in place very quickly. And again, that just helped us maintain a level of momentum through the change. Having gone through that, that you know, those of us that do transformations kind of, for lack of a better word, for a living, right? You, you always get that critical year three stall. And for us, focusing yeah. on that year three stall and, and blowing through the year three stall, that in our case was made you know, much more difficult as our year three was in this middle of this global pandemic and ensuring that we push through as organization that year three stall and maintain a level of momentum to come out the other side. In transformation where the focus is performance, sometimes the performance eats growth for a living because mm -hmm. the, the cost initiatives are easy to measure. You don't need to prune them. While as growth initiatives, there is a customer angle. So sometimes you're successful, sometimes you're not. You need to do 
pruning. How did you balance the keeping up the growth as part of the transformation? So for us, we had to invest in growth. And I think one of the challenges many companies have in transformation is that understanding that that growth and that accelerated growth only comes from a period of investment in that growth. So accelerating your your new product development expenditures, adding additional business development resources as we did in our emerging markets, that costs money. And while you can certainly focus on optimizing the organizational structure and all those things we did, there had to be this balance between generating that margin enhancement that our shareholders were looking for with investing in growth. And and frankly, it was about having real conversations with, with my board and our shareholders in that, yes, we will get that margin enhancement, but we will always use a portion of that margin enhancement to drive growth in the outer years of our program. Our lean implementation, our supply chain, gaining control over logistics costs, all of those things were going to certainly drive margin enhancement. But having the frank discussion is, look, you're not getting all that back, shareholders. We're going to take a portion of that to reinvest and fund the growth engine that we need in the out years of this program. Once they saw that you had a plan to do that, frankly, it was uh, it was quite easy from there. You know, We've been able to demonstrate both that margin enhancement and growth to them. I think that was very effective so far. So you talked about a lot about the transformation and the change leadership and what you, what you needed to train in the organization. Maybe a question related to growth. What are the leadership capabilities or cultural factors that are critical to drive the growth? I think these days it's it's certainly agility is one that comes to mind. And I think resourcefulness. We began doing profiling when I joined Rotork of all those new executives that have come on to help us in this transformation program. And certainly, as you can imagine, not all that have started the journey with us are still here. So we've gone back and looked at the documented psychological profiles of those who didn't make it and those that are really thriving within Rotork. And what we find is that that resourcefulness, that ability, it's important within Rotork that you have this ability to work all along a, I guess what I call a strategy to execution continuum, that you can, in one day you come into the office and you're thinking about the strategy for how to penetrate an an emerging market. Two days later, you may be actually out in that emerging market with the team, focus on executing some of those initiatives. We have an organization that's really about that player coach mentality, that going to where the work is done, seeing the work that's done and contributing is, is one of the key tenants of our leadership. And I think that's what we see that that certainly has helped bring the company along in this journey. So your philosophy is that growth should be linked to a company DNA and you should have the right leaders to lead that growth who have there's the right no DNA. There's no doubt about it. There's, there's, there's no doubt. And what's nice about it is that that, that becomes self-fulfilling, that attracts the additional talent. When we're interviewing individuals to come to the company, Wow, it's a much easier sell when they know they're coming to be part of a growth story, right? And and despite the fact that, yes, all along we've been doing some major organizational changes and, and footprint consolidations and all some of the more difficult parts of a transformation, the fact that they see that all that is part of a journey to drive a growing enterprise and a thriving enterprise, it, it truly is really 
remarkable from a recruiting standpoint for us. It's been very, very helpful. Kevin, it's super impressive how you have driven the growth, not only on the initiative side, but also on operating model, choosing the right people, building the right capabilities. And when we talk about operating model, we often talk about steering, performance steering, processes, systems. Was there something else that you needed to change to enhance the next growth trajectory of Rotok? I would say one of the biggest things we had to do in Rotork differently was to introduce a different performance element to Rotork. Rotork is unique in that every employee in the company globally gets to participate in a discretionary bonus program for the company. And that's exciting. The challenge we had was that all the employees got the same bonus, right? So you could imagine if you're working in a team and you come in and work extra hours and drive a level of performance and, and customer communication and, and you know program knowledge and, and all of that, and you were incredibly well-loved by your key customers. And maybe you have another individual in that same department that that doesn't have that same discretionary effort or passion for customers in a road tour. Well, at the end of the year, you both got paid the exact same amount, irrespective of your contributions. So we knew early on we had to revisit our strategy for how we compensate employees. We immediately put in place personal objectives that are linked to our strategy. We began cascading those objectives and ensuring that all employees in the company had a set of objectives that were linked to our success. We now have regular performance conversations and the output of the performance conversations in terms of the results and the values that those individuals are bringing to bear on their work input now into our compensation decisions. You have had a very people-focused growth transformation, taking the investments on the capabilities, finding the right people and steering them right, but also involving them to driving initiatives. Absolutely. But when you're looking back now, is there something that you would have done differently? Or is there big learnings that you think that they are valuable for the next three years? I think looking back, I think there's very little we change. I think that the the learning is that we focused on, on execution, hitting our commitments, short cadence management, clear, consistent communication to the organization. We ensured we put in place the right KPIs and then measured them and looked at, you know, kind of looking at your instruments, looking at your dials on a more frequent interval. If you look at the five to 10 years out, what are the big strategic changes you expect Rotok to do without, of course, closing and disclosing the confidential uh, strategic perspectives you have? Yeah, so that customer communication, quote, turnaround times, simplifying product portfolio, We've talked really openly about that being that early foundational piece and that we believe the next five to 10 years of growth come from you know five areas that we continually talk openly and publicly about. And for us, the first and, and probably most impactful is this geographical shift in, in fluidics towards Asia. We've had to take a keen focus on that geographic expansion and recognize that not only did we have to focus in the near term, but certainly over the next 10 years on this dramatic shift in our resources from the West to the East to serve that market. And I mean, this this goes beyond selling and business development resources. And in many cases, that's that's the early part of the journey. But it includes things such as localization of product design and manufacturing for local consumption, the localization of greater decision-making 
closer to customers. You know, a quick example of that would be historically, if we were working on a large contract, and, and many of our programs are, that contract would come in, be sent to the corporate center to a legal team and be reviewed over a period of weeks. And what we recognized in for us to have that speed to respond to customers, we had to localize even our legal resources and certainly have them operate within a framework or guidelines that may have been established at center. But day to day, they're making those decisions closer to the customer, reviewing that contract now in a matter of days so that we could get that customer to place an order much more quickly than that, that protracted three or four week contract negotiation. The second has been this increasing need for automation and digitalization that's going to continue to drive our business. And it means integrating devices beyond those produced by Rotorque, as you mentioned earlier, into these integrated system, which collectively provide better insight into and control of our customers' processes. I think the third for us is, is one that we've talked about in the past, and that's the building out of a really robust field services organization. It's oftentimes being utilized to supplement the needs of our customers who are actively reducing the amount of skilled workers they have on site. We've certainly really focused on a suite of products that support the move towards a lower carbon economy through reduced energy consumption, and it can be utilized with renewable energy such as solar power, you know, our, our suite of products that we're launching every day is really all about elimination of harmful emissions such as methane, carbon dioxide, and they certainly help us participate in those adjacent and emerging lower carbon value chains such as biofuels, hydrogen, just to name a couple. These lower carbon alternatives remain fluidic intensive, and as such, we have a right to play and we're certainly very aggressively going after these markets. And to be clear, we have a lot of growth ahead of us in oil and gas in that as the world focuses on, on a level of decarbonization, one of the key elements of that is that the current extraction and refinement of those natural resources has to be done in a much more environmentally friendly manner. And our products being electric rather than pneumatic and hydraulic actually really play into that in that we eliminate the harmful emissions and things. So Wonderful. If I, if I may have one last question before we close. What is the role of M&A in your future growth story? So it's, it's very important. Rotork is very cash generative and we still see that there's a lot of great near adjacent products that we could put close to Rotork to have a more compelling value proposition with a combined technical integration of some of these near adjacent products rather than just a commercial integration, if you will. Rotork has a very, very strong balance sheet. We have a history of utilizing M&A effectively to drive growth in our business. So we're going to continue to do that. I think in the very near term, we're dealing with an environment that very few high quality properties are, are coming to market. And the very few that are, are trading at incredibly high multiples. So for us, that just means a focus much more on proprietary M&A deals in the near term and ensuring that for those deals that we like, that we pay an appropriate price and then again, drive a great return from those. Kevin, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your transformation story and both the strategic view on how to bring long-term growth outperformance, but also how to make it happen in the growth transformations. It's been my pleasure. 
Kevin and Anna, thank you very much for being with us today. We hope all our listeners enjoyed the discussion as well. We'll share a transcript of this conversation on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our library of more than 80 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. And finally, if you'd like to automatically receive our insights on strategy and corporate finance, you can sign up for email alerts at the bottom of our podcast collection page. Again, that's mckinsey.com slash ITSR. Or you can follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy and connect with us on our McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.